So welcome everybody to a, I guess, a special edition of the Color Authority because I'm going to be doing something I've never done before, at least not on this podcast. I was actually invited on my own podcast by Keith Recker, with whom you all know I did a wonderful podcast last year, to be interviewed myself. So that's what it's going to be like. I'm very uh, uncomfortable in a certain sense of the word, but I am also very excited to be doing this. So Keith, welcome again on the Color Authority and thank you for your invite. Thank you for saying yes. Yes. I think like most people who don't love being the center of attention, you really deserve it. So why don't we start? So I'm going to just introduce our uh, most esteemed quote unquote guest today, because I think many people listening out there would love to know more about Judith Van Fleet. So Judith was born in 1981 in the countryside in the Netherlands. She moved to the beautiful urban environment of Den Haag for her studies at the age of 17. And at 28, she moved to Milan, which fulfilled a lifelong dream of living in Italy, which I share. She still lives there, a participant in the vibrant unfolding of color and design thinking in one of the world's creativity capitals. Her initial dive into color came in her first job as product planning specialist at Kawasaki Motors, where she was the only European and the only woman on Kawasaki's Japan-based design team. Later, she served as senior color designer at Aviant Colorworks, which designs innovative and increasingly sustainable polymer-based colorants to the manufacturing sector. And she was creative director of Color Forward, a global color forecasting guide. These positions allowed her to travel around the world to present social and consumer color intelligence to cross-industry professionals, designers, and marketers. Today, she's the captain of her own ship as founder and color intelligence provider at the Color Authority. She's also vice president of membership of the Color Marketing Group, where she's been very active for over 15 years in positions including president and member of the executive committee. I came to know Judith through her podcast because she had a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, Patty Carpenter, on, and I tuned in and listened to all of them. I think this podcast is so informative and so inspirational. So with a worldwide array of guests, Judith gives shape to color, not just as an element of design or a tool to entice customers, but also as a spiritual force, a problem-solving element, a multidimensional, omnipresent factor of the human experience. And this big consideration, I think, makes Judith a unique and uniquely informed color thinker. On behalf of many people who see this podcast and you in the same way, I thank you for today. So I'm such a fan, I, we sort of touched on this already, that I really did have to kind of plead and beseech Judith, I think at least three times to consider this. <laughs> and finally, last month, we got a yes. And here we are today. So we're going to get to know her better today by turning the tables a little bit and allowing her to be the interviewee. And so here we go. I'm going to start the same way you start, because I love your initial question. Judith, what is color to you? Well, and that that is exactly obviously the question I've asked everybody. So I, I've heard so many replies, and it's very difficult, to be honest, to now reply to that question, of course. But for me, literally, it is who I am. Because I'm, I think, one of the very few persons, and of course, you are one of those as well. But if you look at how many people actually would love to work in color, color is their passion, design is their passion, but they can't really make their own business out of it. That's exactly what I did. And I never thought that was that was possible. For me, color is really, it is life, literally. 
it is something that I think moves people. And I think color is still not receiving the attention and, and also, to be honest, <laughs> the popularity and the importance that it is actually that it should be given. Because, as I said, I think for me, color is something that not only makes me emotional each and every day again, and it really taps into my feelings. I think it can bring a long change. And that's where a lot of people are still not quite understanding that power of color. Um, hence the podcast. Interesting. Right. And you've around the world for people who as a healer for people who like mark wentworth right identify the color of you um have you worked like that with color have you taken on a healing component have you identified with a color to make it your own i have well definitely so when mark told me i was born in yellow and that was, I mean, it was just amazing to hear that because a couple of, um, I think almost a year before that, I did another podcast with Thelma van der Weef, and she's a color therapist. And she told me I was in need to wear more yellow to come more in touch with my own being, with my intuition and with my what she called my life mission. So then when Mark said that I was born into life as a yellow person and that my archetype was a warrior, that I need projects and that I always ask the question, why? I was just like, that's it. That's me. But I never looked. I mean, I looked at color always the way how I dress, um, for example, today dressing in orange, because yes, I am doing a podcast. Orange is the color of connection. It's the color of communication. I, I don't always think about it like that, but mm. on days that I'm just not feeling that great, I I will not wear black because I know it will drag you down feel worse. Yeah. Well, I love, I love that you're identifying with yellow because what I see across the podcast, the arc of the podcast is that you have that bright optimism that when light is shone on something, it becomes useful and perhaps more important, right? And it can it can take the shape that people need it to take, yeah. right? Once you shine the light on it. So this is this is color. This is you. Yeah, but that's also what a yellow person is. A yellow person always needs to ask themselves, how can I shine? And if something or a person or a situation is not bringing out the best in you, especially in my case, being a yellow person, I better leave it alone or I'll make people miserable, I was told. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Judith, we have so many things to talk about on and off right? this interview. <laughs> well, let's move, let's move to the question that I think you alluded to this in a separate conversation that people ask you all the time, right? There are some questions that you frequently get from people and now's our chance to maybe hear some of your answers. So to you, what is color forecasting? Color forecasting is a tool. It is obviously for a lot of people a way of making a living as well. Um, for me, it is a tool, however. It is how I, over the past couple of years, have helped and I continue to help companies, marketeers and designers, brand owners especially, on knowing what when, when they have a certain product line or a certain service, they're always thinking about, yeah, but what does it need to look like? And maybe they have an idea on how to look, what it should look like, but the color is always a very difficult topic. Also, because still people are very afraid of color. And I think doing color predictions 
a long storytelling because a lot of people still really think that we just go out in the street and we just go, okay, today is blue or let's do green because, or that we pick our favorite colors. Also, that's a myth, obviously. But I do think it helps people make decisions for product lines and make sure that that they pick out that right color, that in the moment that they're launching that product, it actually fits the environment. And that can be the environment of the end consumer. It can be the environment of their particular market. Because when we look at how much actually color influences a product, it's around 85, 95. It really depends on what statistics you look at. Getting the wrong color just literally means that you'll have a lot of stock of that products. And I think in the current society, that's not done, you know? Yeah. Inventory is a bad word. Yeah, exactly. Right? You, want it to, you want it to go. You want to produce just enough and you want it to go. Yeah. You used a phrase a second ago, which I love, um, long storytelling. Mm-hmm. How does how does tracing the story uh, of the colors that you're recommending enhance the communication and the relevance of what you're suggesting to people? I think when color forecasting started, you could easily, I mean, you would go to the big leader by Edecourt or Cécile Pugnot or whoever, you know, you were really into and listening to, even, even Pantone, of course. People would just literally get away with saying, okay, next year is orange and this and this and this color and that's it. It's not like that anymore. If you don't actually explain people why you're actually seeing certain colors happening, they won't accept them. And also it will make your life very difficult as, as a forecaster. So what I see is that storytelling is not necessarily making up a beautiful story and obviously, yes, bringing them along certain decisions that they need to make. But I think storytelling comes from online and offline research. It is building the confidence uh, with your clients in a way that makes them understand that what you're seeing, your observations, what you're seeing in the market, how different markets are connecting to one another, where you're seeing those small bits and signals, how you connect those dots. And if you do that in the form of storytelling, using, yes, also informative data, such as, unfortunately, sometimes statistics, it is it is more likely that people will actually buy into your, your colors as well. Because I don't think that Colors just exist per se. There's always a reason why they enter the market and you need to know that reason. And the client right now, they'll need to know that reason. So storytelling, yes, needs to be done beautifully, poetically, um, but it does need to come from, from close observations of the market, external factors, economy, politics, societal movements, um, even new food ingredients, new restaurants opening up, new Netflix series that suddenly are popping up or being super popular. They all say something about how we're feeling, how we're behaving, and then also what colors we're going to be more sensitive to in the next couple of months or years. Um, So it's a step-by-step process. Instead of launching the colors on your table in front of the client, it is a it's a process in which you actually explain them the how and the why before you're getting to that end result. You're you're touching on something that someone I I knew very very well for a little while, <clears throat> uh, a textile designer named Julian Tomchin, who just passed away last week. Uh, he told me well before I ever thought about getting involved in color trend forecasting that the worst trend forecaster thinks that they're creating the trend and the best forecaster 
is always listening and reflecting the trend. And right, you're saying the same. This is this is an act of information gathering and listening and building the stories that are coming because they're actually out there. Yeah. And that's that's the myth. A lot of people think that we are pushing trends onto people or colors onto people. And I that is that is not true. We are simply observing society, maybe not the complete society, but let's say groups of society that perhaps, yes, are more at the forefront of, of what is happening in certain markets. But by those observations, you can at a certain point read out what they're looking for. And it always starts with their values. If you don't understand the value of the people that you are forecasting for, there's no use of doing forecast. And the second, of course, is what is their need? What is their very particular need that you need to tap into? And color is just as much a need as as a product or a service. When you say need, do you mean the need to increase sales, the need to innovate, the need to be at the top of the pyramid in their category? Is that what you mean by need? No, it's really emotional. It's a need way more deeper than we actually think. Yes, it can be in the form of a product, but in the end, you buy a product because it is going to fulfill a need that you feel you have. And you can judge the needs of of people in in different ways, of course, whether how hard they are on the hierarchy of, of truly needing a certain product, yes or no. But let's say in the winter, you buy different types of clothes because you literally need to feel warm. Um, now in Europe, gas prices are so high. You can literally see people buying uh, merino wool as thermo just so that they can put maybe the, you know, the, the heating a little bit lower and still still be comfortable at home. Those are needs. And those are maybe, yes, direct, immediate needs. But the beauty of uh, human beings is that they change continuously. And once one need is fulfilled, the next is already there. So that's why also there's not one trend forecast that is good or is correct. There's multiple. And there's no like, oh, they got it wrong or they got it right. There's just multiple stories. There's multiple groups and societies and markets that you forecast for. But to do it well, it means you need to observe and understand literally what those values are that people are um, actually following in this moment and what those needs are and how you or you can help your client tap into those needs. Right, right. Well, you know, you you touched on something which kind of leads us to the next question. You were talking about how no one forecast is necessarily right, right or wrong. They're just hooking into a different energy at a different point in time. Yeah. When you work in groups, right? We we had a we had a nice smile uh, a few conversations ago about what it's like to be in a room filled with people who are super committed about color, who've all done their own research and come to the table with a passionate point of view. How do you create consensus in a group process? And I suppose it's I mean I know it's like this with clients too, right? You can present something and have it just meet a huge wall of resistance. How do you get to um, an agreement? in these processes. So funny enough, I've never received huge resistance. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, again, the storytelling. Mm -hmm. If you have a very good reason of why you picked a certain color and you can explain even a child, a five-year-old, because that's always also what I tell people. If a five-year-old can understand, the entire market can understand. But if you're making it all complex and use a certain language that nobody else is able to understand, 
just let it go. Yeah. But I think storytelling is, is important. In my so I moderated groups for at least 15 years. Mm-hmm. Being part of one of the decision makers, but also always being the moderator. And funny enough, once the story is built, the color consensus follows. There's still discussion. People around it comes to color become very passionate. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's lovely to see. But very often, because you talk about the story for hours or sometimes days, mm-hmm. depending on how you 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 do the the workshops, um, the the color pops in your mind. It's already it's always there when you be, at least it is in me. And I'm not a synthesty, but when I talk about certain stories, I already know what the color should look like. And I think that is for most people. So if you're aligned on the story, color most of the time follows. So what we do normally is when. We describe the story. I ask everybody, what color family do we need to pick out for this color story? So not immediately, let's go for a dusty, shady pink. No, let's first go. So we go for the red family and why the red? And then indeed, why we go for a pink that is desaturated or what type of application would we see this? That's that's the next step even. That's even after the color has been picked but it is really about defending your color. It's not because I like it. It's not because this is coming and that's it. No, this is coming. What? No, you're going to explain the rest of the group why you think it's coming. Mm-hmm. Who are maybe even the people that are going to tap into that color? Maybe even what products you see that color in. Right. Especially if it's, if let's say you're the outsider who goes for a color that's so different than what the rest of the group is is seeing. And that, yeah, that does happen. But in the end, discussing, talking, building that story, it's very hard that you get like, let's say no consensus. I mean, at least in my 15 years of experience, that has never happened. At the at the end of the day, the story that I was referencing about Wall of Resistance, so I had a gig with a major soft drink company a major soft drink company and my looking at what was coming in terms of political polarization really inspired me to say and I I think I was probably right that red and blue would be looked on with less than joy and that it would be great to start to build some identities that weren't so hinging on only red and blue yeah that was very difficult for the corporate types to hear but at the end of the day as you say great storytelling and patience right led to a much enhanced use of black and white right which are flexible and not perhaps as tainted in some ways but yeah i think you're right right it is unearthing the story it is talking and building understanding in order to get to agreement and sometimes also what the why not why not that red and blue and also what it unfortunately for the last couple of years has has stood for it in, in politics, of course, which makes it so difficult. And I know that brands and soft drinks are different, but mm-hmm. people have color traumas so deeply eradicated into their beings and in their families. It's hard to get around them sometimes. Hard to get yeah. around them. It is. It is hard to get around them. So that's, that's you know, we talked a little bit about working in groups. When you're working alone, how do you challenge your own choices? Like we we have in other conversations talked about that need to get beyond I like. How do you back up and really, you know, call your own choices into question so that you're confident at the end of your process? 
I, I do my research alone or well, alone. I mean, if I go to Milan Design Week, I often go with friends. And while you walk, you, you chatter and you, you observe together, obviously. I do my research alone, but then I do regularly check in with my international network that I, thanks to CMG, have. And I discuss my observations. I discuss my observation also with people who are not actually in the forecasting industry. Because people who are architects, who are all part of my uh, my friend group, people who are artists, they all have those observations. They all observe the world. I mean, that's not just forecasters. So for me, then also CMG, Color Marketing Group, has been perfect in the sense that during the workshops, I bring my trends, I bring my colors, maybe in a smaller story. Maybe I don't bring them the full the full story, but a topic. And very often this is confirmed. And even because you're discussing with groups of 10, 15, 30 people, there's a lot of new information added as well. So for me, network and having that network, it's an immense worth. I think people still have not understood the the worth of actually having a network like that. Literally, I'm it's literally an email to you or a call quickly to indeed Patty or, or anybody else uh, because I have a question. Um, what red is China looking for this year for celebrations for their new year? It literally takes me one email to find that out because of the network that CMG grants, but also the network that I've built. So that is how I confront. Then when I do trends for a client, and they've actually assigned me that as a project, I also talk to them about it. I, I more talk about what are the no's maybe within the market. There are certain colors that just don't work in cosmetics or that don't work in, in, in packaging for, for certain shampoos, for example, because they are very much still color-coded according to what you want to do with your hair. So that is... To a certain extent, I do also ask feedback of the clients, but that's only when I'm already actually already almost done. And then I, I normally um, ask them for for some feedback as well. But that's that's normally at the at the end. But yeah, talking to my network and um, that's what a lot of people don't get. I share a lot. I share a lot of my information. I share a lot of my projects um i share a lot of what i'm actually thinking and, and forecasting because i don't believe in keeping everything with me because they're competition or they're they may do something with my information i've never quite understood that and maybe that's stupid but that's how that's i operate no that's great that's that's very yellow of you yeah <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> is there a color is there a color that you find appearing in your forecasts that you catch yourself saying, oh, you know, that's there actually because I like it. No. Interesting. No, literally, no. I've, I forecasted colors that I was literally like, oh, okay, <laughs> whatever. But maybe with, uh, you know, a, a mica or a pearlescent, actually. And that is actually true. Flat color per se can be like, oh, I'm not so sure about that one. But then there's this world of, special effects, transparency, opacity, you know, going all in the, the CMF part of, of what color is. There is no such thing as a truly ugly color. Literally, it's not because depending how you apply it, the amount of uh, of color that you apply, and then on what type of surface with the textures, yeah, it changes the world. Yeah. There's a, um, a probably very well-known ugliest color in the world. Yeah. 
in use in Australia, you know, and when I see that sometimes pop up, I think to myself, you know, actually, that's a really beautiful color. And it grows on you. Like yes. any color can grow on you. There are yeah. certain colors. What I think is that let, literally there's colors that just, especially when they're very clean and very bright. Yeah. So uh, low blackness, uh, low whiteness, you can grow more easily tired of them especially when you have them maybe in your home. But other than that, I think any color can really grow on you. Yeah, that's true. Every every color serves a purpose, right? Of the 10 million shades that the average human can see, they all crazy. seem to have some purpose. It is crazy. Yeah. So let me ask you the next question. Is there a current color problem that you're working on solving? Oh, I have many color problems. <laughs> <laughs> Which one shall we start with? Well, as we were talking about color forecasting, I think that is the, the biggest problem. Not the biggest problem, but let's say I, I I don't think color forecasting the way we know it now is going to exist for many more years. Because I think generally in a world where it is clearly we're not doing well <laughs> as a society, the world is not doing well and we're still not understanding it. Today, it was 11 degrees Celsius in Milan. It's January. That's not normal. Consumerism, th these are true issues. We cannot do seasonal fashion anymore, in my humble opinion, and not working in fashion, but still. We can't do seasonal color forecasting either, maybe not even annual, because... Mm -hmm. And I, I don't have the answer, but I feel very strongly that in a couple of years, this will change. Not immediately, but I feel that it's it's totally uncool to push colors onto people and onto products in a world where simply we need to start living with less and not changing our wardrobes as often as we do. So what I've started to do is to work more on color identity with brands and brand identity. Trends always influence any color decision. People that say, I know the color trends. I'm like, yes, you do. Everybody is an observer. Everybody in the end is a designer, is an artist. We all are influenced by what happens outside. But to literally copy paste what color forecasters are doing, which still happens in a lot of companies, I can tell you, and they're greedy for the next color forecast every each and every time. They are also getting resistance from R&D very clearly within the companies, as they should. But I don't think that that is um, the entire future. I think life is slow, but also it's, it's, it's always there's always duality. Life is changing very quickly, which actually makes us freeze. However, you know, not a lot of people are seeing that that's happening uh, because we're just pushing for more. But what you're seeing right now is that we probably would look more into longevity colors. Mm -hmm. um, and longevity color is not always navy blue. And, you know, that's different per market, per product, per culture still. Agreed. But that's a topic which I think is is a tough one to crack. I mean, I've in my podcast, I've asked so many people. Like, I think we also touched upon it. I don't think it's sustainable. I'm seeing there's the word again. But generally, I don't think it's sustainable to have seasonal forecasts, but also forecasts per se. I think they need to be looking forward at least 10 years ahead yeah. instead of what it's now, a year or two years. Dealing with duality is definitely part of the discipline at this point. Yep. What will last and be productive? 
what will provide stimulation and interest in the moment, because you need both of those factors, I think, to complete a sale right now. So you're right. The duality part is super important and it it does change the nature of, of color forecasting. Yeah. I think it's spot on there. The story is changing. Do you find, do you find that the ideas about data and artificial intelligence are changing people's perceptions of the future and how we can walk into it with more information? Yeah. I'm not too convinced on that yet. I think still color is highly an emotional topic and it always will. Data is making us feel more comfortable, perhaps making certain decisions, especially when you work with big groups, big companies, big OEMs, and you are going to splash an orange, let's say, on a car. You may also want data on what orange sells like in most markets. But that's always the past. Data still cannot forecast the future. So I think in that sense, it's always going to be the human and the emotional part of us, which is still intuition, choosing colors. I think data actually makes it maybe easier to understand certain movements in the market. I, I doubt it will actually take over, not for now, at least. I, I doubt that. I've been in conversation with um, an AI ethicist who lives near here, mm-hmm. and he made a statement that in his view, AI was capable of generating material that was just about good enough, but not excellent, not original, not forward-looking. And I think about that all the time, right, in in the face of of these ideas about data and uh, and trend forecasting. They have no ego, so why would they push themselves? We are still (laughs) necessary, is my conclusion, but (laughs) yeah, that's about right. That is about right. Is there any color that's on your mind lately as an expression of the general zeitgeist? I've actually, I've tapped into orange again, as you can see. I, I don't know what, where that comes from. It's definitely not because we lost in the world championship. <laughs> <laughs> or is it? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but um, and it, it has been orange because I've, I've never been a red person. I find red very often mm. aggressive, mm. a little bit too bold. And I find orange just sweeter and softer and more amicable. So that's been the color that I've I've had on my mind. And it's funny that when I have conversations about as well yellow as orange with people, generally, whether it's fashion, whether it's products, mm-hmm. there's resistance. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's funny that resistance. A lot of it people always say both colors, not a lot of people can wear the colors. I'm aware of that. So that's that's the first resistance. They don't understand that maybe there's 400 of oranges and yellows that they can choose from. They just see one particular color. But there's some resistance when it comes to both colors. And it's it's funny because color psychology-wise, they're rather positive colors. Orange can be seen as cheap in certain products. Yellow can obviously talk to, to sometimes envy. And in yellow rooms, people are not comfortable but they're not negative colors at all. I love what you said about not red because we've just been out through pink PP, right? We magenta. Yeah. These are, these are not red. This is a way to have all the vehemence and the fire without it being over the top, as you said, and orange maybe is, has the same benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. Let's, let's back up and, and be philosophical. How does color change? 
How does it move across the seasons, the years, the decades? Is there a mechanism? Is there a pulse? How do you see it? I think color is changing more due, well, it's changing due to two factors. The biggest external factor. So this is, yes, again, sustainability, having less in the money in your pocket. Uh, it makes people buy differently, literally. Less, but also differently. People go for more secure, maybe more neutral colors or colors just that they know that they already have in their wardrobe and that's makes them feel safe. I mean, for some people, orange can be a safe color because they know they look good in orange. But on the other hand, you have also the personal level. And I think those are the big factors and where we see color change. Seasonality is less strong. And that's not, I think, that's already been a thing, I think, for a couple of years. But yes, in the winter, we wear maybe colors that we induce warm feelings with and then hot summers colors that inspire coolness. But I think we are reaching a point where people are actually learning about color and expressing their feelings, their personality through color. And I think that is going to change the whole seasonality about color. There's a few colors, however, that I've noticed, having done forecasts for 15 years, is that colors like fuchsia, like certain mm -hmm. magentas, and lime green, they come back every other three, four years. They have a, a shorter cycle, even if they're very bright, they have a shorter cycle. And I've that's something that, um, it's not a color problem, but that's something that intrigues me. Like, why is lime green so often coming back in in forecast and the same for fuchsia pink that's a good question sometimes i think turquoise has a similar thing doesn't come back as often as fuchsia but yeah. a bit the same yeah it's almost like you get thirsty for something like oh i haven't had a i haven't had you know a manhattan in a while i would like a manhattan today yeah it's i agree with you there's something interesting about that so basically you're, you're talking about sort of a combination of the general zeitgeist, the personal impulse, and some seasonal variation yeah. as creating this rhythm. It's almost like a pulse, right? Mm -hmm. It is, yeah. but I think color changes less often. Uh, whereas I said, when we are in an economically healthy environments, uh, that's also when color forecasting was actually born. You you would see that in the deeds, products change quicker, markets change quicker. People are also quicker in following certain color trends, but we are simply not in certain environments. So people are literally not entirely comfortable. And, and that you can see, we as humans are, as I, as I told you before, we are freezing up, whereas the world is speeding. And we are freezing because we're in paralysis because we've been stuck for a couple of years. And now we actually have to get back on the the crazy train, the rat race. And you are actually seeing that everything that we're pushing on to consumers is not sticking as well as it was actually before. And you're seeing that. And brands are actually now seeing that too. And I do think that's why colors will be less seasonal. They will have a, a greater longevity as hopefully also certain textiles and fibers will. Um, but I do think that we tend to think that we are as quick as external changes, we human beings, but we're actually not. We don't adapt to change that quickly. So neither to seasonal colors that quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And the more rapid the change, the more likely uh, the consumer is to seize up, right? Too much is just too much. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. How does place and therefore culture affect color and color evolution? I know you've spoken very passionately about Mexico. 
right? And the color sensibility, it's very regional, it's very urban versus rural. There's a lot of factors. It's hardly a monolith. But there is overall a different color sensibility that's terribly exciting. Yeah. How do you how do you describe the difference between, say, Mexico and the Netherlands or Italy versus the US? Well, the funny thing is that as well, the Netherlands as Mexico has a very strong relation with orange. So that is that's what relates, I guess, the two countries. But culture, culture in color is hugely important. It sets like culture sets language, what we eat, what we drink, um, how we move our bodies, how we dance. This is so influencing as well color because color is part of all of that. So our upbringing and light hugely influences color. In Scandinavia, my brother lives in Sweden. Literally at 3 p.m., it is dark. There's no light. So having dark colors in the home means there's absolutely no reflection during those few hours of the day that you do have light because literally dark colors absorb light. So that's why... In the north, as well as in the Netherlands, still, you you have lighter interiors, literally, because you want reflection. You want, when the sun comes in, you want it to reflect something back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is different in, in countries like, like, like Mexico. And it's different also in Italy, where colors are brighter. There's a reason why colors are brighter in sunnier areas in the world. The funny thing, however, is that Dutch people do tend to dress very colorfully. I think also that one of the reasons is because they do understand that color is important and it makes them happy. They've already understood this. Um, I think that is very similar to larger parts of of populations in Latin America. But they also care less of getting it wrong. Whereas in Italy... They're afraid to get it wrong. So they just stick with what they know if they're not very fashionable, which is unfortunately black. In Italy, there is a lot of black. And in interiors, there's perhaps more color. But it, it's, it's funny enough that we're in Italy, it should be very colorful. It's actually not. I was, um, I mean, I have a jacket in this exact same color as I'm wearing. I was the only colorful person on the subway today. Everybody was wearing black well you know the beginning of identifying black as the right uniform particularly in menswear was in 15th century italy italy castiglione right and il corteggiante he defined black as the dignified appropriate choice for you know for daily wear so it's had a long history it has a long history and obviously it's um i think especially with italian women they they still have the feeling that it dresses and it dresses nice it's true but yeah, it's unfortunately, um, black also makes you um, literally invisible. I right, mean, you're not right. literally not transporting your personality, your character. You're definitely, you're literally absorbing light and energy. I love what you said about not being afraid of getting it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Because my my own experience in, in Mexico and Guatemala and other countries in, in Central and South America, uh, there is a freedom to go for what's going to make you happy, what suits your day, what suits your mood, you know, what suits you. And uh, that kind of freedom is very nourishing right? when you're when you're in the middle of it. You also feel free. I think also in especially well, I can talk more to Mexico is the spirituality level of spirituality is a lot higher than 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 here in Europe. How people just know that certain foods 
energies, herbs, alternative medicines are just good for them and for their bodies. You know, I'm not going too much in detail with shamans and what they can do for you as alternative medicine. But that's huge. And that's something that here in Europe, we're only just tapping into. Maybe our grandmothers knew and they did a little bit of their own. But we also have to recognize that women until not too long ago were actually um, literally put on fire when they would play around with herbs. So, I mean, Europe has a history when it comes to what they would call witches. There's a reason why here there is still a stigma, whereas it's not in Latin America. Right. And those cauldrons, right, of the traditional depiction of witches, that could just have been a tisane, right, with some vervain and some peppercorns and something to actually perk you up. Yeah. 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 So that's perk. where the first oppression to at least women in, in Europe started, if you think yeah. about it, and what uh-huh. that did to color and what that did to food and indeed also the world of medicine. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. Separate question. Uh, more on the color forecasting, you know, back to the color forecasting questions. How does color vary from sector to sector? So we know cars are different from furniture, right? Yeah. Packaged goods for the shelves are different from clothing. How do you see the difference between sectors? I think definitely packaging, fashion, fast-moving markets are a lot quicker to tap into trends and color trends. Food as well. Literally, I mean, you eat it and it's gone. So they're they're very quick in, in moving in this sector. Not necessarily that they will put the last color of Karl Lagerfeld on their on their croissant. Not not quite like that, because what you see in the food industry is actually everything going natural. So less working with colorants. But it's funny when you say car industry, the automotive industry, doing color for the automotive industry is huge. This is where it changes completely. Because specifying for them is very complicated due to the high quality levels that they have to keep. Even black, literally, it, it's just, it, it's a very long process, let alone do it color that maybe through light or uh, any other external source may, may change over time. Literally, for most automotive OEMs, that is a no. So unfortunately, it is a more conservative market also because they, they work a lot a lot of more years ahead. I remember in Kawasaki, when you would have an, a motorcycle completely from scratch, meaning that you're redesigning the engine and the chassis, that would be literally at least three years of of actually working on, on that motorcycle. In the car industry, I think it's probably even five so you're actually forecasting five years ahead, three years ahead in the motorcycle industry. So those are industries that are more conservative. It's true. If you do color forecasting more years ahead, there's more risk that you don't get it right. The resale is a big factor in the automotive industry. If I buy a yellow car and I want to sell it in two, three years, there's not a lot of people that probably want to have a yellow car. That is a different factor. So I think the automotive is very particular in that, especially when it comes to color, because quality, but also, unfortunately, the conservative matter that you still have with consumers in this particular market. But what I say is, as in food is quick, packaging is very quick, fashion obviously is quick, and interior sits a little bit in the middle. The higher investment categories move a little more slowly. Yeah, That notion of resale or longevity does come into play. Yeah. 
It does. You know, it's fascinating. I, I've noticed when I look at concept cars as opposed to what's on the sales floor. Amazing. Amazing. The yeah. risks that are taken are amazing. The material and, choices. Oh, the reflectivities, right? The, I, I found a concept car that was basically red reflecting with highlights in magenta and low lights in purple and the the way the light caught the curves of the car was mesmerizing and you and i both know we will never see that on a sales floor yeah. and yet how inspiring yeah it's yeah. i mean probably people will buy an austin martin or uh, you know and get that done personal and personalized mm. yes because i actually have seen one in the streets of milan mm. but it's one and definitely they pay tons of money to have it done yeah, but but it becomes a bit of a piece of contemporary art at a certain point. Almost, yeah. It's lovely. So the last question that I had prepared for you, we already sort of answered. Mm -hmm. Is there a color that best captures who you are? So you're on yellow and yeah. orange, right? You're on yellow and orange. What was it before? How did it change? Right? Where were you before you had these conversations with very insightful people um, to begin to grapple with yellow and, and to some degree orange? A lot of blue. A lot of blue, uh, the darker blues mainly. And funny enough, <laughs> now I'm adding more color indeed, but funny enough, I used to wear around my early 20s, mid-20s, a lot of brown and gray, both colors that really stand for stability, structure, family. Mm -hmm. Gone. I have, I have none of it anymore. I mean, literally, when I look at those colors, I'm like, yeah, no. I have a hard time imagining you in brown. Actually, it suits me very well. Gray as well. Because mm. a large part of my eyes, actually, I mean, they're blue, but there's a, a big gray part in them. But, yeah, it's just not, well. they were too grounding, maybe, for me. They were, I'm a very free person. Uh, what we say, an anima libera. And I could just, yeah, I think those colors are literally pushing me down. I just, I can't, can't have them. No, a free, you're a free spirit. Yeah, right? it's it's interesting, right? As as use of brown uh, becomes more common in packaging, as you're mentioning this drive towards things that seem natural, even if they're not, you're emerging into a new, a new color zone. Yeah. Sometimes that thirst comes early for people who are thinking about the future. You know, so maybe the change is also a reflection of what you do. Probably. I think it is. I've, that's how things are always connected. And I, I know people don't tend to see that or think like that. But literally what you shine, what where your energy is at, it, it comes right back at you. So and that's the thing where we're a lot of black and wearing a lot of black. But it's the same with indeed what's happening around us and, 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 and the external factors that are having a huge influence on our lives. They all influence us on a subconscious level but i think the more people know about color and know how to work with color and play with color i think that's going to have an immense change on on people's personal lives as well i do too i do too i think that this general economic moment that we're in will press for conformity and care but this drive to feel seen and to feel like you're an individual will push towards more diverse choices and it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out in the next few years yeah right yeah you'll be there you'll be there thinking about it too i know it yes i'm already thinking about it <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly what else as we close right because we're coming up on time 
what else would you like people to know about what drives you in this thing that you do? I think what a lot of people don't understand when they are picking a color or when they need help in picking a color is one of those questions that I always ask all my clients is what do you want to stand for? Mm. Who are you? Mm. What does your product stand for? Because I think a lot of companies are losing their identity and especially I'm going to a little bit like burn my bridges here, but especially when you follow color forecasts, literally that has nothing to do with your identity as a brand. Yeah, It doesn't make you more forefront and you don't need to be a leader to lead and use color and pick a color. That's also another myth that a lot of people are, are thinking about. So when I work with my clients, I work more on brand identity, color identity, and sticking with that and going back to heritage of many brands. I mean, there's a lot of heritage brands here in Europe, but also everywhere in the world. And they're losing that connection with heritage. And heritage is not old. It is, however, who you are and what you stand for. And that can change over time, but don't forget about that. What I also feel is that I personally feel very strong about is that the trend, the whole trend parts, I think we're moving towards feelings and emotions and work issues as well. Wellness, health, the whole psychology part of color, that is where the future of color lays. Um, yeah. And that is a longer term vision. And that is on the rise for sure. It has to be because we have no clue how to feel good again. And I think color can literally help a lot with that. I agree. And I'm glad you're there thinking about it and driving people into good choices, driving companies and people into good choices. I feel better about the world, Judith, knowing that they're at work. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for interviewing me. This was actually rather nice. Yes, I'm, I'm less uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> we can do it again anytime. It would be really fun to do it again, to revisit. Cool. Thank you so well, much, Keith. Thank you. So this was Judith Van Vliet from The Color Authority. Thank you for listening again to yet another episode. If you haven't done so, please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, review, and send us feedback on this episode. And I hope that you will be listening to the next episode coming out very, very soon. Thank you and have an amazing, colorful day.